I want to start with uh, just a couple of, uh, of important uh, concepts here. There's a couple of things in the church, and maybe there's more, but there's two that come to mind this week for whatever reason. Two concepts, two words that we use in the church, but we use incorrectly. And, uh, and we have made it comfortable and easy by these definitions. But I suggest to you that if we continue to use these words wrong, we will miss the whole point of all of these things. The first one is this, fellowship. We've all heard this. Perhaps if you've been in the church a while, you've been in a class called koinonia. It is the Greek word that is translated fellowship in the New Testament. And we have defined fellowship as Christians hanging out. Typically, within Christendom, there is food involved with fellowship. So if you got Christians and you got food, you got fellowship. But I want to suggest to you people that that is not what fellowship is. And if we fall for this as our definition, we will miss out on what God has for us with the word fellowship. So what does it mean? Fellowship really means this. The self-sacrificing involvement of believers with other believers. It, is, it looks a lot like friendship. Self-sacrificing for the good of someone else. So if there is not a sacrifice involved, and somebody doesn't, uh, as a result of this, come out of this uh, blessed in some way, the favor of God or good things coming to them, helping them through a circumstance difficulty, comforting them in their sorrow. And friends, we have not had fellowship. So let's not cheat ourselves by using these words incorrectly. The next one, even perhaps more important, is this. It is the word worship. Worship. We have defined this wrongly in thinking that worship is... Christians singing songs about God and listening to a sermon. It's true. I see heads nodding out there. It's true. This morning, by the way, was that not a great introduction of of worship this morning? Pointing our hearts and our eyes right directly to God. And I hope that in some way your heart was engaged. Because the real definition of worship is this. Worship really means the expression of pure adoration of God. Worship is an expression of adoration. I wonder, I don't know about you, I was standing there singing my heart out here because it was all about God and His glory and His wonder of of things we're going to talk about today. And I'm sorry, I'm bouncing today. I'm excited about this. I'll tell you what, this this is some amazing things because worship is why we were created. Is to, is to know God as he reveals himself to us and as, a, as just a natural response of knowing God will be an adoration of God. And we all know what that looks like. We, we, we remember, remember when you got married? You, you remember, uh, uh, ladies, you were standing just around the corner and you were shaking a little bit. And it wasn't because you were afraid of anything. It was because of excitement. And even as you trembled around that corner, 
you were expressing an adoration for the person around. Something about that that you appreciated so much about that guy you wanted to spend the rest of your life with him. And guys, you just stood there in front of everyone. And she came around the corner and you braced yourself because somehow, some way, in the cartilage of your knees transitioned into pudding and you were doing everything you could to hold it together. Even today, I saw Melanie like, a, uh, I don't know, a half hour before uh, uh, she, she arrived here at the uh, church again, the second time this morning. And even when she walks in the door, and I just see her from a distance in the hallway, I'm like, wow, oh, there she is. And you know what that's like. How do you express adoration? Lots of ways. Oh, there are ways you can jump and you could shout but you could just stand there silently in awe in lots of ways. So how do we show our adoration to God? How do we express it? Well, we certainly can do that through singing, and especially if there's hymns or songs that point us to God. Singing about ourselves is not necessarily the best way to worship God. Now, singing about ourselves can talk about the common condition and the truths that God has revealed about us, how we can conquer. I'm not saying they're useless. I'm saying they can be greatly encouraging and teaching. But to, uh, but to, to reach out and show your adoration to God through song, through silence, through the expressing of, of thanksgiving, all these different ways. Now, we've talked about worship here, but you know what we're going to get? We're going to get a snapshot this morning of what worship is. So take a look with me, if you will, in, in Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to go fast just because I'm so excited about it. And I keep talking. So you're going to have to keep up with me or throw something at me to slow me down here. All right. So again, we're, we're, what we get to do here this morning is, is walk through a door. And you may remember just as, uh, as we were reading through the passage this morning and get a glimpse in the throne room of heaven. And we get to see what's going on in heaven. Take a look here in, at verse 1. We get this glimpse of the throne room. And after this, after what? Well, after last week when we, we got that uh, progress report of the churches, and we go from what's going on in earth to what's going on in heaven. And after this, I look, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Remember in, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 19, we have this divinely uh, uh, revealed outline of this book. I must show you the things that are, the things that you have seen, the things that are, the things that must soon take place. And the things that uh, you have seen in chapter 1 is an image of Jesus. He's not the soft shrinking back Jesus that people try and define him as today, but he is in glory, and he is amazing, and he is to be worshipped. The things that you have seen, the glorified Jesus, the things that are, 
the conditions of the church. And here it is in chapter 4, the things that must take place after this. And so this invitation, this, this word, come up here, this invitation some have recommended signifies the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is when Jesus meets us in the air. The dead in Christ are raised according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And those who are alive and remain will join them and we will meet him in the air. And there will be a wondrous, wondrous reunion that takes place. And I'll tell you what, there's people I'm looking forward to seeing there. And maybe you are too. And some have suggested that this invitation represents that. I don't know if it does. But one of the reasons they believe that is from chapters 4 to 19, the church is never mentioned again. Not till we get to chapter 20. And so perhaps a, a good argument, maybe it's a little weak. We don't know. But we do, what we do know is it was a literal invitation for John to walk through this door and take a look. And I tell you what, I hope in about a half hour you were really excited that John got that opportunity. And so this invitation, and they would show John what must take place after this. But that invitation then leads to some observations. And here we have John's description, at least the best of his ability to describe what he sees in the throne room of God. I want you to notice this, verse 2, and I, at once, I was in the Spirit, which uh, likely, uh, like Paul, out of the body, in the body, Paul didn't know. But perhaps John's body kind of left on earth and his spirit is there in heaven to see it all. Because remember this, you don't have a spirit, you are a spirit. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. What you have is a body and it's temporary. So here is John now in heaven. And at once, and behold, I love that word, behold. It's like, you're not going to believe this. Take a look at that. Behold, a throne stood in heaven and with one seated on the throne. And then, then like Revelation, we get a lot of imagery. We get a lot of like and as kind of stuff. It's like this. It's somewhat undefinable, but if I had to choose a word, it would be this. Take a look. With one seated, and, and verse 3, and, and he who sat there, had the appearance of jasper. There's no explanation for jasper. We all know what that is. I know. You're like, stop it. We don't know. Tell us. Jasper is a translucent. It's a stone that you can see through. And, and some, some commentators say, this jasper he's talking about is like a diamond. And suddenly we know what we're talking about here. What does a diamond look like? It can be cut and shaped in so many different ways, but the characteristic of a diamond that makes it so wow is when the light hits it. Ladies, you may remember when you first got a diamond and you looked at it all the time and you hold it up to the sun and this explosion of colors came from this ring. It was beautiful. And it was like that. 
it was like that. The appearance of jasper. And then carnelian, which is a red stone. And so you have this burst of a, a rainbow of colors perhaps bouncing off of the ceiling if there was one, but certainly off of everything else. Come on, you've done that, right? You're sitting in the living room and the sun comes in the window and it's reflecting off your watch onto the walls or something else. And there's just an explosion of colors. It reminds me of, uh, of this uh, little girl was walking in the parking lot with her father and stopped and looked down. In, in the parking lot, you've seen this before, somewhat of a puddle with oil in it. And the oil made a little rainbow. And she looked up at her dad and said, look, a broken rainbow, a smattering of colors. And so what we see immediately here is that the throne room is not boring. It is a heavenly discotheque going on in there. Colors everywhere. I can't believe I said discotheque in a sermon. <laughs> And then notice this, further description. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow, more colors. And that, it had, that rainbow had the appearance of an emerald. So uh, the greenish colors of the rainbow, I suppose. And, and that rainbow above the throne, what could it signify? Well, well, well the Lord, uh, he, he made that clear what that rainbow was all about. After the flood, God had made a promise, and that promise was that he would never bring a flood to the earth again like that. He would never destroy the earth with a flood again. It was a promise. And at this point in history, whenever this might be, one of the things that we know is true thus far is that God has kept his word. Perhaps this rainbow does just what it meant to be at the beginning. It was a promise of God's faithfulness. And so we have this image of the throne. Now, who is sitting on the throne? It was the Father. And we'll know that as we distinguish as we go on through here. But notice here as we continue, and around the throne. And so we've seen the one on the throne. Now we take a look at the ones around the throne. And we first meet here the 24 elders. Now notice here, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, and they were clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. Now these uh, 24 elders, they have been identified by commentators, uh, scholars, uh, 12 human leaders, uh, maybe from the Older Testament, the Old Covenant. Perhaps the patriarchs, 12 sons of Jacob, maybe. And then, then, then another 12. And what 12 could it be? Oh, I know the apostles. There were 12 apostles. Well, not the bad one. Maybe they snuck Paul in at the end to make it a roundup 12. And there is no proof, explanation, evidence whatsoever of this. And so I sat at my desk Tuesday morning reading this going, Melanie, what does this mean? Because this is what makes the reading of Revelation scary. 
This is why we, we, those are the clean pages of the Bible. Nobody has notes in there because nobody has the guts to preach through it. Well, some don't. But I'll tell you, I was rethinking it. And Melanie actually suggested that. Well, you're the one that wanted to preach through this book. Figure it out. I'll tell you what. I believe the same thing that you believe, that this is the Word of God. And God would not give us a word that we can't understand. And even those things that are difficult, He has given His Spirit to illuminate these things. And so I did what you do when you're reading something hard in the Bible. I asked the Spirit of God to lead me in this and to help me to understand what all of these things mean. I mean, why would God give us a book that we can't understand? And so I got studying. I got studying here. And I found four clues that reveal their, their identity. As I read through the book of Revelation, I noticed this. And I, I've encouraged you to do the same, and I hope that you will. But you will find this, that they are distinguished from the saints in this book. They are distinguished. There is the saints, there are the tears of the saints, there's all, and then there's the 24 elders. And that's one piece of it. It's it's not absolutely, well, then it has to be whatever. But I notice also that they are always grouped with the angels in the book of Revelation. Whenever you read about the elders, they're always associated with angels. Now, well, what are they wearing? They're wearing white, and they got gold crowns. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. Didn't we just read about that, about maybe the rewards? If, the, if those who uh, endure, they overcome? Uh, didn't God say he would give them to, to wear white garments? And maybe there was a crown. And then you'd get out your trusty Strong's Concordance and look up that word. And he'd say, hey, wait a minute, the thing he promised them was a, was a, was a wreath crown. A wreath crown, it, you know, all, think of a wreath, you know, all these uh, plants uh, weaved together to make a crown. It's, it, the Greek word is Stephanus. If your name is Stephen, it has something to do with a crown, okay? And that's not the crown he's talking about here. He's talking about a diadem. And you've heard that word somewhere before. It is the crown of of those who are courageous and rulers. It's a different crown. So it kind of tells us it's not the saints. I mean, we talked about the rapture here. It's a different kind of crown. Well, who wears a gold crown? I mean, angels don't wear crowns, do they? Well, perhaps if you turn to uh, chapter 6, we'll just throw it up here. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, we're going to talk about those guys too, say with a voice like thunder, come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. Do you notice that word crown? It's not Stephanus, it's diadem. Hmm. 
So apparently, more than just the saints are wearing crowns here. We'll talk about that when we get there, but it's a different kind of crown. And so this kind of uh, identifies once again that, uh, you know, that it's not the saints. And the angels are certainly identified as white in Matthew. I mean, we know the Christmas story and the uh, identification of these angels clearly that came. They're wearing white. Apparently, some angels wear gold crowns. But what about the world with the number 24? It's one of those revelation things. You got 17 of these and 22 of those, and those numbers make no sense at all. But they do. This is what's got me so excited here, because I didn't know this. When I learn new stuff, I get excited, and I have to tell people. And I'm glad you're here this morning, because I want to tell you about this. One of the things that we know about heaven is, is by the types, these shadows, so to speak, that we find in the Older Testament. Remember the, the nation of Israel, how God had them first build a tabernacle? Remember a tabernacle is a tent. But even within this tent, there was, there was this place where there was a giant curtain. And as you, as you moved beyond the curtain, there was this place called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark, uh, made of acacia wood, part of the Ark carved in were these two angels. You know, they, they were angels with these wings, and the wings almost touched, and it was a, it's a beautiful picture. And even on the, the curtain, there were angels somehow stitched in, and I don't know how they do that. But that was one of the descriptions we have. And then, then who was around this place? Priests. You, you got the, uh, the Holy of Holies, the, surrounded by angels here. Then this curtain with angels on it. And then you have 24 orders of the priesthood ministering around this. Outside, but around. The priesthood reflected as a shadow of what heaven looks like. I think this is one more yet evidence of the identity of these 24 elders who are always associated with angels. Angels. The temple, the shadow of heaven. The 24 orders of the priesthood. And uh, to get their opportunity, they rotated through. That story comes up when Zechariah has the opportunity to serve as a priest you know, and that's when he uh, comes in contact with an angel who has a word for him about the birth of his son. And he, he's a little hesitant on it. And that angel says, well, you're not going to be able to speak until you give this name to your son. And so I think all of these things add up to tell us something, that these 24 elders are angels. Now, there are people that disagree with me, and there's other people that really agree with me. And I think in your study and your evaluation of the evidence, I think you'll come to the same conclusion. But angels surrounding the throne, and it doesn't end there. Now, notice verse 5, what's happening around the throne? A lot of prepositions in this, uh, this passage. You've got around the throne, before the throne, and, and under the throne, and around on top of the throne. A lot of these prepositions. So from the throne, there's lightning and thunder. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And this is all, of course, reminiscent 
of Mount Sinai when Moses went up to, to meet with God. And the people stood back, being sure not even to touch the mountain. And there was lightning and thunder, and it was awesome. And around the throne of God, there is the very same thing. And then I notice here, Moses, uh, uh, and before the throne, there were burning torches of fire, seven of them, and which are the seven spirits of God. Now, some have suggested this is the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit as found in the book of Isaiah. Remember that word seven is about completion, perhaps the full presence, the full power. I don't know what it might be, but it references the Holy Spirit. In some way, this signifies the presence of the Spirit of God around the throne. And then before the throne, verse 6, we sang about this today, and I wonder if you saw it. There was this, this sea of glass And this is, again, an unusual imagery here. You know, we talk about these stones, and we talk about the the reflections and the dancing, and here we have this sea of glass like crystal. And uh, even around the the tabernacle, one of the, uh, the pieces of furniture around this whole was this sea of bronze, and this this laver and uh, and and so the sea represented in heaven as well. Remember what a shadow is? A shadow is image of the real. When you see a shadow, unlike uh, the movie Peter Pan, you know, when you could grab your shadow and throw him around the room, you know, a shadow simply represents uh, an image, uh, a reflection of the real. And if the Old Testament tabernacle and all of these things were shadows of the real, we can expect in heaven that there is something there that is real. And so these images of heaven, the reality of all of these types in the Old Testament, and around and around the throne on each side of the throne, I notice also that that there are four living creatures. There's another one of these... uh, the revelation things. And notice, these living, these four living creatures, they're full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion. He was like a lion. There was an attribute about this living creature that reminded him of a lion. Didn't say he was a lion, like a lion. And the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And of course, when you come to this, you immediately say, Melanie, come here, look at this. How am I supposed to preach this on Sunday? But once again, I mean, surely there is something in Scripture that can help me understand this. And so I, I used a, a very special tool it's probably sitting right in front of you. It's called a cross-reference. You know those little references, those little annoying things that get in the way while you're trying to read a verse, a little letter, or a number, or some kind of indicator? I, uh, I actually have a tool on my computer that uh, there's the, the text of, of the Scripture, and right next to it, a bunch of these cross-references And so I looked at this verse, and then I looked on the other side, and I saw a reference. Apparently, in the book of Ezekiel, this very same thing is mentioned. And you know what's even better than that? Ezekiel tells us what they are. 
You see, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, you see, you find the, the very same, a very similar description. These very same things are found. Ezekiel describing these things in chapter 1, and by the time you get to chapter 10, Ezekiel's talking about these things again, referring back to the location where he saw these things in chapter 1, and he gives us the identification of these four living creatures. They're angels, but a very special class of angel. Apparently, angels uh, are not all angels. I mean, they're all angels, but they're different. Remember, the word angel means messenger. Those who are sent by God with a mission to deliver a message, to encourage, to help, to strengthen, to support. Believers on earth in the Older Testament, uh, the saints ministered by angels. Jacob uh, uh, was helped, uh, you know, and, and so you have these, this identification. In Ezekiel chapter 10, he tells us that they are cherubim. You familiar with the word cherubs? Yeah, cherub is, uh, is, is a class of angel. There are different kinds of angel. Michael, in Daniel chapter uh, 7, is an archangel, an archangel, meaning a ruling angel. So you, you have this organization within this, this, this uh, movement of angels. Michael up on the top. In Isaiah chapter 6, often pulled out in missions conferences, there is this, this other angel called a seraphim. We sang about those today, as a matter of fact. You go back and maybe look at the words of those, uh, those hymns. They talked about cherubim and seraphim falling down before you. And, uh, and the, the cherubim first are mentioned in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. What are they doing? Yeah, it seems that Adam and Eve had sinned. And God evicted them from the garden. And at the entrance of this garden, God placed a cherubim to guard it. It seems that these cherubim are right there at the throne of God, perhaps as guards, guarding the, uh, the glory of God, the authority of God. And there they are right at the throne, these living creatures. And each one of these things, well, what's with the eyes all over? It's got to be really annoying to try and focus. But these eyes represent uh, the omniscience, the seeing. You know, later we're going to read about horns, not thorns, but horns, you know, representing the power of an animal. All of these images have, have meaning. And so Ezekiel tells us that these living creatures are the cherubim. But these cherubim are also mentioned in other places as well. <coughs> Oddly enough, in Ezekiel chapter 28, when Ezekiel talks about the fall of Satan, and at the end of his uh, explanation, he identifies Lucifer, the angel Lucifer, his role in heaven. He was over responsible, the chief guard of the cherubim. Lucifer himself was a cherubim, right there at the throne of God, trying to steal God's worship. What was offered to God in worship, he wanted for himself. It's a little bit of angelology here going on. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 
tells us uh, also a little bit about the uh, organization of angels. Paul refers to, uh, you know, he reminds us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, so tell me about the things that are not flesh and blood. And Paul says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Classes of angels, all in the structure and organization of these ministering spirits. It's a lot to digest. Friends, I'm introducing this here, okay? Get online and then be aware of it. There's some really egregious lies and errors about angels, you know? We got 72 names of angels. Well, you're not going to find those in the Bible, okay? You got the, the angel Daniel, and the angel Daniel was talking to Daniel the prophet, and Daniel is the. Don't buy that nonsense. Charles, hmm, C.F. Dickinson. Charles Dickinson, okay? He was a professor of mine at the Moody Bible Institute. He is he's one of the authorities on angels in the study of angelology, okay? used to refer to him as Charlie's Angels, you know, if you know that 70s reference. But uh, um, excellent, excellent, excellent author on this if you want to study more about angels, okay? But remember, none of these angels are being worshipped. The worship of angels is, is, is idolatry. But here are these angels surrounding the throne, okay? So you got this lightning and thunder, and you got the seven spirits and the... Uh, the sea of glass, and then you got the four living creatures, the 24 elders. It must be a really big throne room to have all of these people there, okay? But, uh, but let's, uh, let's look now at the activity around the throne. I mean, we've, we've seen the invitation to come up into the throne room. We've certainly made some observations about what's in the throne room. But now we take a look at the activity. And this is the point here, friends. All of these amazing creatures, angels far more powerful than you and I. I mean, the attributes of these angels are awesome. I mean, Jude, you know, and uh, talking about arrogant men, you know, and rebu- hey, even the most powerful angels will stand back and said, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, he's, he's talking about these angels. I mean, they're the big guys with a really big muscle, and they walk around, and they got the best car, and it's fast. I mean, they don't need those things. But what I'm saying is these guys are amazing, these angels, always masculine, by the way, in the Scripture. There's, there's no little dolly, curly-haired angels in heaven, okay? You don't die and become an angel. Angels were created order by God. And, uh, and yet... As amazing as these angels are, Jesus died for you and me. These fallen angels, there is no redemption for them. The apple of God's eye is you. In all of your weakness, in all of your infirmity, in all of your mess-ups, just like mine, you and I are the apple of God's eyes. And so this activity, what's going on? Well, verse 8 tells us this. And the four living creatures, the cherubim, each of them with six wings are full of eyes and all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day after day, moment after moment, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is the song of worship. These four living creatures are worshiping God. Yeah, but couldn't they go to like to the gym and work out? I mean, these big tough guys. Of all the things they could do, the most important thing they would do and do do is worship. Yeah, what about those 24 elders? Again, associated with angels. And whenever, verse 9, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, giving glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And the worship of heaven continues. And by the way, one of the key elements of the word worship, proskuneo in the New Testament, is to fall down. Now think about all of the things that we know in the New Testament when, whenever a man or a woman falls before some heavenly creature, you know, an angel or, or Jesus, and they're falling at his feet in worship. You see, you can't just stand there or worship, just sit there singing songs and call that worship if there is no heart, if it does not engage the mind and the heart and the, the body. Certainly, worship entails all of these things. True adoration is a response that you cannot hide. And so there's worship. Whenever those living creatures are giving glory and honor, remember, they never cease. Those 24 elders are falling down before him. They cast their crowns before this throne. And they speak. All of these activities, falling down, actions of offering, and these words of praise and rehearsing who God is and what he has done. And in the midst of all of this worship, there is a crisis. 